listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Faim Anwar. Faim Anwar is a Los Angeles-based stand-up comedian, actor, and writer. Formerly an aerospace engineer at Boeing, Faim traded the cubicle for the stage and has never looked back. Faim now has a one-hour Amazon special entitled There's No Business Like Show Business. He's appeared on Conan, Late Night with Seth Meyers, the Joe Rogan podcast, and on Comedy Central with his comedy group Goatface, which includes Hassan Minaj from The Patriot Act. His recent film TV credits include Neighbors, Drunk History, Carmichael Show, Superior Donuts, and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which is where Fahim and I first met. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we get to see a different side of Fahim. Not the performer, but the man he is off the stage, although he does crack a few jokes here and there. Some of the main points and questions we discuss are the heightened sensitivity to political correctness these days and what it means for comedy, how Fahim's upbringing in a traditional Afghan family impacted his decision to pursue a life of comedy, how comedians interpret the world, the importance of taking off and to go into what Fahim calls observer mode rather than being in performer mode all the time, Fahim's long-term approach to pursuing a career as a comedian, and lastly we talk about why Fahim says many ethnic comedians are wearing creative handcuffs. This is a fascinating conversation and Fahim sheds a lot of insight in what it means to be a comedian. So without further ado, this is Fahim Anwar. Fahim Anwar, how are you today? I'm great. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So where are you right now? We are at, in Washington, D.C. So Fahim, this is your first time to Washington, D.C.? Yes. All right. Now are you excited? Yeah. Wonderful. Just because I've never been here as a civilian or a comedian. And I'm here as both now. And here as both. And you're going to be here for the next four days, essentially uh, yeah, sharing the, jokes, the long telling haul. jokes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of um, the audience members that don't know who you are, how do you explain what you do in your own words? I guess I am a stand-up comedian, primarily. Mm-hmm. That's sort of my main path, my main thing, my weapon of choice yeah. to forge through this entertainment forest. Yeah. And then everything else has been a byproduct of that. Like the way I met you, we met on set for Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. That's right. That Tina Fey movie. That's right. I happen to have a small role. I get, <laughs> I think enough time has passed. I get blown up. <laughs> My character's name was Joeyd. There's going to be no Joeyd spinoff unless he's a zombie. I really pushed. I go, I think we need to do like a zombie Joeyd movie. Yeah. The people are clamoring. The message yeah. boards are crazy. Yeah. So stand-up's the main thing. And then these offshoots will happen. Like uh, writing and uh, yeah. acting and yeah, yeah, usually comedy related. So great. So help us understand what that means, because because uh, comedy is its own animal within itself. So mm-hmm. so you do stand up and you stand-up do comedy. sketch. Yeah. So help us understand what the difference is between those two. Stand up comedy is. I mean, if you're unfamiliar, it's a yeah. guy holding a microphone or girl. Yep. Or whatever your binary, whatever it is. We're in a, it's 2020. Sure. Whatever. So it's a person holding a microphone, telling jokes and uh, yeah, in front of a crowd. So it's a very immediate art form. Mm -hmm. And there is sort of a dialogue and conversation with the crowd, if not like the way we're having right now, but there is a ping pong. That's what separates it from someone doing a monologue on stage. There's almost like a piece of glass between you and the Broadway performer or whatever. Stand up, as you're telling the jokes, they laugh, you wait. 
if someone responds kind of more than the rest of the crowd, you kind of like look at, it's just, there's more of a dialogue than right. say a monologue. So, so it's a dialogue, but it's also really just a conversation in terms of like the energy you get. Yeah. It's a conversation. It's very relatable. Right. And it's some, a lot of the times when people watch stand up comedy, a comedian will say something and it's just like things that we've all thought about mm -hmm. crystallized in this moment in time. And that's why it's funny. Right. You know, it's this shared experience. That's why some of the best stand up comedy is very relatable. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's interesting. So let me ask as somebody who's just an, like, an objective observer, as a comedian, your role in this society is to make us laugh. And that's a fantastic role, I would say, right? Yeah. How do you do that? Like, what is it that comedians do? Would you poke fun? Can you talk about things that are maybe uncomfortable to talk about? Like, what exactly? For sure. Yeah. The beauty, and especially, I think it's more relevant now than ever mm -hmm. when, you know, society is dictated that what people say is getting trimmed down more and more in everyday life yeah. whereas stand-up comedians thrive on that and that's like the last stand for free speech and that's why you can hear some crazy things mm -hmm. and the day we strip away comedians abilities stand-up comedians or just comedians in general ability to address certain topics sure it doesn't bode well for the average person as well because that should be a protected thing, you know? That's really curious. Now, as somebody who lives in Washington, D.C., you're in Washington, D.C., the place, the political machine of the United States where people are very, as I would argue, conservatively polite. Mm. The reason I say that's because I think people here, um, when they engage, if they do engage, they'll, they'll, they'll do so with some reservation because they may never know who you are. You could be an aide to a senator. You could be the son to an uh. ambassador. You could be the lawyer to somebody in the White House. And so it's this place where you don't really know who people are, but somebody has, everybody has a certain role. Where everyone has an angle and you, qu you don't quite know what that is. Precisely. So why reveal your hand Precisely. too soon? It's that sort of, that's the sort of feeling you get here. And so as it pertains to free speech, so people are relatively conservative about what they say sometimes, right? Mm. So in the context of your work, what you're saying is comedy is this space now where in other arenas, mm -hmm. freedom of speech is, it's not necessarily free speech. People get triggered. People get upset. Yes. Right? And so- uh, can you help us understand where some places in which this is happening? Uh, that what's happening? Free speech and all that? Or what do you mean? Yeah, we're like this idea of free speech. People are like, uh, I guess there's like cancel culture. I've heard you talk there's about that. this sort of I stuff. I mean, uh, even say on the left, if you, I yeah. think there are people who genuinely feel like, oh fuck, if I use the wrong pronoun, my right. life is over. Right. And I, I'm just uneducated, mm -hmm. you know, because it's such a new thing for a lot of people and, and not that they don't think these people should have rights or anything. It's just they haven't studied hard enough or they, they just don't know enough of those type of people to know the nuances of the language. Right. So sometimes there's this temperature of like, I want everyone to be included in equality, but I just, I need to learn first. Right. And please don't destroy me because I, I, I'm not up to speed yet. Yeah, there's that, that idea of like a character assassination or reputation assassination because somebody may not do, not know something and yeah, they'll say something. Yeah, or like I feel like we're, we've become a contextless society. Mm. Like know where the person's heart is. The intention. Yeah, the intention. Because yeah. right. a lot of times, even on Twitter, you'll see a story just kind of take a life of its own. Right. But then when I read it, I'm like, oh, I, I know. This person. I know what they were trying to do or right. their heart was in the right place. Right. And even, you know, even like Trump stuff, like some stuff he has obviously should get thrown through the ringer for, sure. but some stuff I'm like, okay, they're just running. That's a stretch. Right. <laughs> you know, right. he has enough regular ones that you can pile onto. You don't need to stretch this nothing burger. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's curious. Um, so you're saying like uh, comedy is now the last sort of like mountain that people haven't been able to conquer as it pertains to free speech. 
It's something that should be protected. I think so. I yeah. think you have, have to protect the swing. Look, not every joke is for everyone. And there are times, mm. and it, it's one of the last or one of the only art forms that require trial and error. And in order to get some of the funniest jokes and perspective, you need to offend sometimes because you don't know right. what that line is. And the right. audience, there have been several times where I have an edgy joke or an interesting take on maybe a hot button issue. Sure. And the first time I try it out, I, it's, it's a little clunky because it's the first time it's coming out of my mouth. I'm trying to find the idea and all that stuff. Right. And the audience will rightfully clam up and tense up. And then that's how you know, like, okay, I need to trim this word or this, I'm, I'm saying it wrong. I'm not getting my idea across or I don't need, this is too far. Maybe I'm going too far and I'm not getting my point across. Let me take that part out. Sure. So the audience's silence it's a natural checks and balances. The, the audience is not laughing and tensing up. Let's the comedian know that you need to refine the joke. And then a few months later, a few weeks later, whenever it is, when things click into place, it's this great joke and, yeah. and it works. But yeah. the trouble is, because it's, it's this organic process, you don't know who's seeing you try the thing out. And people, people just think a show is a show. Some people don't understand that it's a process. So if some blogger or something catches uh-huh. you trying this for the first time, uh-huh. they think that like you do this every night. Like this was your intention, even or though that you this messed is up. like my ta-da show. You don't understand that it's day one Got it. in a three month process to get the bit where it needs to be. And right. so if they write something, you're like, well, it's not done yet. Or right. like, I obviously wouldn't. You know what I mean? You're like at the it's not start, finished. You're at the start of the process of refining it. And that's what they're catching. Yeah, so and that's what you, they're, yeah, yeah. You, you caught me fall on a night and I know I fell. How interesting. And it's not there yet. And I know it's not there yet. Like you think I would continue to do this joke in its mangled format. That's right. At, at Radio you know, City Music Hall or whatever. And I think that's really important based on the conversation, how we started in the sense that, you know, a lot of people, including myself, don't understand that stand-up is a conversation with the audience, that it's a process, that you may have an idea in your mind, but the only time up to that point that you're practicing it is it's in just, the bathroom, in the yeah, mirror. Yeah, or not even. Sometimes it's just swimming around in your head. These thoughts are just swimming around and, and then uh-huh. if it's in an open mic or something sure. or you're just throwing the idea out there for the first time, the audience is your editor. That's, that's right. That's the beauty of stand-up comedy is if you have funny ideas and you're perceptive and you can actually, some people have laugh ears where even if they eat shit all the time, they just hear laughter and they will never be able to kind of refine a bit to where it needs to be. But if you are a perceptive person and kind of assess reality for what it is, as you throw these ideas against the wall, if you're just listening to the audience where, where the spikes are and what they're into they're doing all the work for you. Right. Then the audience is your editor. Oh, I love it's, that. And it's very immediate. I love that. That's, um, that's a good way to kind of uh, frame what you're doing. Now, where do you get your inspiration for your jokes? How do you, do you watch pop culture? Do you watch like what's going on on Twitter? Do you watch what's going on in the news? How do you stay up with the times to find your material and then find inspiration for it? I think just being a human being in this world, mm-hmm. you get bombarded with mm-hmm. all the stimuli and for me personally, it's different areas. I'll, I'll fire yeah. up Twitter and yeah. you'll see what's trending or what the news story is. So, yeah. And that, that could be news. It could be pop culture. Yep. It could be a movie that came out, you know. So you're just being inundated with all these different things. And I don't know, just being a person of this world. Maybe it's something an interaction I had with someone. So I guess it's just being open to whatever the stimuli is or whatever the novel thought. Yeah. Like I'll give you an example. So the sure. other day, 
I had to return a MacBook Pro to the Mac store. Okay. So I go to the mall. Okay. And then I see REI. The store. Yeah. And they have a rock wall. Yeah, yeah. And this thought just came to me. I see this rock wall. I go, I might try this as a bit some down, down the road, but this is just a thought that I had yesterday. I see this rock wall and I think like, I wonder if anyone's died climbing the REI rock wall. And I Good go, question. And I go, I think that would be sad. I think it'd be the saddest way to go out because it's not even a real rock. And it's inside. <laughs> and it's inside. You know, it's like the most bitch way to go out. Like at least with a real rock, people could be like, you know, he was one with nature. Uh, he was with the wilderness. There's a poetry to it. Yeah. But if you die in the REI rock wall, you're just falling to your death while people are trying on jackets. You're like, ah. Like, well, what do you think about this? It's almost pathetic. It's just really sad. And then like, even it'd be hard for my parents to tell people. They would like leave that part out. It'd be like, you know, he died rock climbing, and they'd be like, not oh, what, in what, REI. What what cliff? He's like, it's uh, the it's w- not a port. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one outside of Seattle. That yeah. One. yeah, or yeah. it was like Topanga uh, Canyon. Yeah. Like, oh no, the Topanga Canyon Mall. <laughs> you know. So there's just these different angles, but it starts with me seeing the rock wall at REI. Right. Man, I wonder if anyone's died. And then it just snowballs into all these different areas, you know? Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that it really comes down to, uh, one, paying attention to your environment. Yeah. And then two- uh, I guess having an inquisitive mind. That's, that's what the I difference meant. with Because like funny yeah. things happen to everybody. I truly right. believe that. It really does. Right. Funny things happen to everyone. Sure. But if stand-up comedians are wired a certain way where they don't let those ideas go, go away. They can catch those butterflies. They can recognize it. So when I see the rock wall, my mind's already going. It's in tune. It's in tune. It's ready to receive these ideas where it escapes the average person because they have regular jobs. They're not wired that way. That's so interesting. Whereas this is all I've been doing for several years now. I forgot who had this quote. Maybe it was Seinfeld who said, stand-up comedy is having the eyes of a child as an adult. Oh, that's wonderful. You know what I mean? It's Having playful. the eyes of a child, but the vocabulary- and, Of an adult. Uh, yeah. So looking at the world through a child's lens. Yes. Yeah. Now, so let's talk about that since you brought that up. But I think that's a really great segue. Um, you weren't always a comedian, right? <laughs> <I> so <was. laughs> 17 years- I come out of the womb seven- and I'm like, great crowd. I have the umbilical cord. <laughs> Doc, you have to be so rough. Yeah, yeah. Tough crowd. So- um, Let's talk about your humble beginnings really quickly and just kind of so, to, to better understand who you are and, and kind of where you came from and how you transformed from the person you were to the person you are now. So your parents are from Afghanistan. They are. And you grew up in Seattle. Yeah, the burbs, but no one really the knows. Yeah. All right, Seattle's a very different place now than when you were raised there. Yeah, it's interesting because Amazon, all this tech is there. In the past, if you met anyone, they were all from there. Now everyone's a transplant. Right, yeah. right. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. And so do your parents still live there? Mm-hmm. So tell us about what your childhood was like. Uh, almost idyllic, I would say. I think I had yeah. a great childhood. Yeah. I had an older brother. Yeah. Um, it was like American and Afghan, you know, like my parents yeah. still instilled that. We would have these parties because there weren't a ton of um, Afghans in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. It's not like DC or Irvine or something or the Bay Area where there's a lot. So the Afghan families in the Pacific Northwest, they would do, um, or in Seattle, they would have these get-togethers every month. Just, I think they did that so they didn't feel like they were losing their culture or anything. And so we would go to that, I would hear the music, you know, eat the food, and but we would yeah. do that even, we'd have plow and all that stuff, even yeah. at my house. Yeah. But it was a nice balance of East and West, you know? It was It wasn't too lopsided either way. Like, I wasn't stopped from doing, you know, yeah. things or... 
Yeah, that's really great way to put it. You had a really nice balance because sometimes there's other families that you know who come from relatively conservative backgrounds or conservative countries, they don't have that balance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And It uh, tips one way or the other. Yeah, you know, my I think uh, in many ways my background too was very uh, balanced in the sense that my parents uh, had that same sort of upbringing with us as well. And um, and uh, it's great because my, my brothers and I, am, we don't have, unfortunately, we don't have any sisters. And uh, you know what I'm curious to know is do you think your family would be different if you had any sisters? Oh yeah, of course. I, you know. Yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah it culture, just changes everything. It changes the entire dynamic. And um, so, this relationship that you had with your parents—were you always like, uh, like, what was that like? Were you really easy to deal with as a kid? In retrospect, did your parents did you yeah. get along with your parents? Yeah, we did. I think we were really good kids. Yeah. Um, we weren't that rebellious or anything. Looking yeah. back, but I, yeah. I think that just stems from my brother, my older brother. Yeah. Uh, he set the tone, so whatever he did is kind of like what I had to do. Or I just wanted to follow his lead or because he's the cooler older brother. So whatever he did, that's I followed suit. So yeah. education was really important. We had to get good grades. Um, that was pretty much the only stern thing, really. It's like we had to get A's and B's, and it really wasn't a discussion or anything. We just right. assumed that that's what we had to do. Had you gotten anything less than a B ever? One time I got a C in spelling in fourth grade, but then I changed, or my brother changed it for me. And then like three years later, I came clean and I told him, I go, you know, I actually got a C. And then it was too far gone. They didn't care. Oh my I, God, I, that's I, hilarious. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought my life was over when I got that C. That's a big deal. Oh, I, yeah. I that's like, a big deal. I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So you had to get good grades. You wanted to follow the footsteps of your brother. Now, yeah, your brother- like my brother wasn't doing drugs or anything and uh, he was getting good grades. He was just like a model citizen and just like a, mm-hmm. a model kid. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did, you know? Right, so let's- and I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think like I was missing out on anything. It's just mm-hmm. like what he did, I did. That's really interesting. Um, do you have a really great relationship with your brother now? Yeah. 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 So let's talk about how uh, your path uh, and your brother's path differed. Yeah, yeah the only- yeah, that's the only place where we differed. Is like we were pretty much the same, except yeah. uh, I always had like artistic pursuits, or I really enjoyed that. I liked. I was more of a performer, and my brother didn't really have that. I think he juggled one time for the talent show, you know, and that was like a, I think a big thing for him, maybe developmentally wise, just like get in front of a crowd and do that. But I think his baseline isn't performer. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was, I forget how old I was. I was in elementary school and I'm like doing the MC Hammer dance. It's probably terrible, but I think I'm killing it and it's the best thing since sliced bread. So I do that. I would dance like Michael Jackson for assemblies. I would make sketches and stuff and show them for the whole school. We had this closed circuit. Um, wow. It was almost like having your own sketch show where the whole school gets to watch it. So I was in video productions. That's how I got into sketch because I loved watching sketches. How kid. old were you now at this age? What, video productions? Sure. I think uh, like eighth grade. I started, you know. So, like, yeah. Yeah, 13, 14. Yeah. So I was making sketches and stuff. And then really fun because I would make these sketches and then we would air them on the on the school broadcast TV. Yeah. And it would happen like zero period or homeroom, whatever homeroom. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Homeroom. And so I showed these things and then the bell would ring and everyone's spilling into the hallways and you're like a celebrity because they just saw your shit on TV and they're like, oh, dude, that was so funny. And right. I was walking to my next class. Right. It was such a cool microcosm for yeah. the larger scale Hollywood thing, I guess. You know, That's so interesting. So help me understand, did you think that was something innate to you as a young age? Is it something that was biological? Is it just the way you were wired from a young age? I guess so because as I'm reflecting on all these, I don't know, 
perform. Uh, there's all these performer things that I that I'm reflecting on. You know, the dancing, right. the sketches, right. drama later on in high school. Right. So I mean, I was always hitting these little benchmarks. So it's it's not a crazy surprise that I'm doing what I'm doing now. I remember we were in Canada on family vacation. Me and my brother were on this canoe. Yeah. And we're having a heart to heart, like me and my brother. And my brother's more practical, you know? Mm-hmm. And I tell him, I go, like, I think I want to do comedy. And I'm talking about it like how in a real way. Like this is gonna be a career and this is what I'm gonna do. And he's like, Are you gonna make money? And uh almost being like a third parent, you know? And I'm like, I don't know, but I just felt it in my bones. I'm like, this is what I wanna do. And and then there was another time too where I was t- telling him and my cousin my older cousin, like, this is what I want to do. And like, how are you going to make money? And I'm like, oh, you can do colleges. I know a guy who's done it. Like there was a semblance of a path because I had been studying the Seattle comedy scene and stuff. They had stand up and, and things going on. And I just remember those discussions that like, I'm going to do this as a real thing. Instead of it just being this extracurricular activity that you would do, like drama, these are conversations I had where it was more like, no, I'm going to set on this path or I think there's a way to do it. And this is the way. But they all thought I was crazy. No, I'm naturally. Sure. I mean, gosh, given our background, like immigrant parents who only want the best for you, the last thing in our culture that they would ever want is you to be a comedian. I mean, that's like- For sure. So, I always have this thought too, that Afghans love art, but want their kids to do nothing with it. Professionally. Professionally. We are consumers of art. We are not creators of art because that is subhuman. It's beneath you. People should be entertaining you. Precisely. Precisely. That's a direct quote from my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. People should be entertaining you. Oh, I already like your dad. Like I'm too high class <laughs> to be doing this. So, But that just shows you they don't stand up in comedy. It just shows you it's not, it's not viewed as an art or expression. Just there's this disconnect. Even with that quote was like, people should be entertaining you. Maybe it's less about me wanting to entertain. I don't do it just to get laughs. Like I, I honestly, it's an expression. There are thoughts I have or perspectives I have and I feel like I, I need to get it out. And laughter is a byproduct, you know? Obviously you need that in order to be in my line of profession and to keep on getting booked and all that. And it's nice. It's icing on the cake though. It's not the entire cake for me. No, I think the way you just express Ideas it. Ideas are really the cake, good. laughter is icing. No, I think that's right. I think there's a major disconnect, not only maybe with your parents and yourself in this site and this in this space, but also too, like with those people, with people that when they see comedians, my feeling is that people probably automatically assume that the way you are on stage is the way you are in person. The way you are on oh, stage yes. is the way you are with friends and the way you're on stage is the way you are with family. Oh yeah. And that's a big um, wake up call for a lot of people because some comedians, it kind of is that way. Everyone's different. Um, there are some comedians who are just kind of on mm-hmm. all the time. And I've always been very much, there's a time and place or there's different me's. There's family for him. There's friend for him. There's podcast for him. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's stand-up for him. But what, what's curious about it, I think a lot of people do go through that, but what's curious is the way in which people see you on stage is they see you as that for him. That yeah, makes them and laugh. sometimes they want that for everything and they can't separate the performer from the person. And I don't know what to tell you, you know, like maybe you have an affinity for that, but I feel more comfortable like this. I I like having a ping pong of ideas with someone instead of trying to be the life of the party or or, or, or like go for the laugh all the time. You know, if it's there, great, but I don't, I don't want it for every, every time it comes out of my mouth. It's almost as though, uh, I I, I value a conversation over like gut busting, you know? 
Yeah, and there's that, and there's also this idea that, um, you know, I, I said this once to to a friend of mine, and I'm not sure if it really resonated, but I'll share it with you because I think it's kind of what you're saying. It's this idea that sometimes I, I want to spend time away from you because I want to miss you. Yeah. Right, so if you're always on, there's a psychological effect whereby it loses its fun. It loses its sense of, like, excitement, the sense of, like, um, you're making an impact. Sure. And I think, uh, I mean, I guess I'm just realizing it right now, I think a lot of my stuff is observational. And mm-hmm. if I'm laying in the cut and just kind of taking it all in, yeah, it's good for that. Yeah. So I, I need the time to simmer so I can pop on stage or perform. Whereas if I'm on all the time, you're losing a lot of things. A lot of things are just driving by. Right, because you're, you're not picking up on it. You're not an because observer. You're perform- yeah, you're not an observer anymore. You're in performer mode. Yeah, so that's really good to understand that nuanced uh, way in which you process. So let's talk about, let's go back to to, to you being, you know, a young person, mm-hmm. telling your brother and your friends that you're going to go on this path. One, how did you have the courage to be able to say, okay, this is for me? Because I think that's a really interesting conversation. Well, even the way I did it was very brown. I think the way that I went about it. What does that mean? It means, I think the white version of this, I'm going to, I'm going to be a star is like packing up my car and there's twine with all the shit on the roof of the car. And I'm like, right. And I just have a Thomas guide and I'm like, time to go to LA. Bye mom and dad. Right. Like, like see it's you a, on the red carpet. Like it's a movie. Like it's a movie. That's the white version, you know, just, I know what I want to do. Why fuck around with anything else? Let's go for it. That's not the path. That's I took. not the path I took. The path I took was more methodical and rational and it planned for what if it doesn't pan out? Some people can't live with that fact, like, no, nah, it's this or bust, even if I'm homeless, even if I go homeless trying to do this thing. You could can, you can be smart about it, tipping my hat to my parents who instilled that. So I knew I wanted to do this thing, but, okay, I need to go to New York or LA, but yeah. I also, I'm going to college. Like, yeah. I want to have a real job, so my parents were going to pay for certain degrees. Engineering was the lowest I could do. I did engineering. And I just studied until I got my degree and I knew that would allow me to get a job in Southern California to be closer to where I needed to be. So how did you do that? So you became a mechanical engineer, went to school, finished. Yeah, and so I was just doing stand-up in the meantime as well. So I knew I wanted to do this thing and, and doing stand-up as part of it. So I would just do that with all my free time. I would, I would go to Seattle and I would perform stand-up and I would do college by day, stand-up by night. Right. Kept on doing that until I got a degree, applied to jobs in SoCal, got one in Long Beach, worked at Boeing, and then I just, I worked by day and then I would drive up to Hollywood and do stand up at night and just kept on doing that for a while. How long? Like three and a half years. And that's when I got to the point where engineering was holding me back. Like I had to make the leap. There were enough opportunities in entertainment that I had to leave my job. Okay. So that's a point of transformation. So because once you go into a place, you can't come back. So how did you decide, how did you have the courage or what were the signals that were there for you that made you realize that you had to do it? I just had a few opportunities lined up where mm-hmm. just my job wouldn't be cool with me taking that much time off. So it was, so it was, it was, it was a literal crossroads, you know? Like when I did Chuck, when I, that was my first acting role. I did Chuck and it was, I, it was gone for like a week or eight days. I took a leave of absence for that. Sure. So it was a short enough time where I can come back and no one knew that. But this other thing, they needed me, they needed me for three months and my job wasn't going to let me go for three months. Yeah. So that's when you have to assess. You go, okay, right. do I make the jump? And there were enough other things as well where it just made sense. I'm like, okay, that perfect moment I'd always been waiting for, 
because I was like, I'll do, I'll have a regular job until it becomes obvious that I have to make the leap. And then I got there. And so I did it. This is the ideal scenario. This is what I've been planning for the whole time. Now it's time to jump. So you were, so you were mentally ready to make that leap. Or th- this is what I've been working towards the whole time. You know, yeah. like I didn't want to give not, that up. Not that Boeing is a terrible job or anything. People, there are people who love it. But uh, it wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. It was a means to an end. And so all the stand up and all the studying had led me to this point. This is what I want to do. So I, I jumped. So you must have woke up that morning being like, okay, I'm going to take the leap. You know, I didn't make a meal out of it. It was just, some people say like, oh, do you miss engineering or was it weird when you left? And it's honestly like, I never even did it. It feels like a dream, honestly. How interesting. Yeah. Because all of your, what I'm hearing you say is the focus was on your comedy. Yeah. It was almost like a- Everything was a means to an end. Like it sounds absurd to the outside observer Yeah. that you get an engineering degree and yeah. you work as an engineer for three and a half years and yeah. then you, you make the jump to do comedy and then- but those were literally the booster rockets to get me out of the atmosphere, you know? And it appeased your parents. And, and it, to appease my parents. And it was a plan B just in case you didn't get to Totally. Because if it didn't pan out, engineer is not a bad door number two. It's a fantastic door it's number a two. great door number two. So let's, let's talk about something else that I think we should talk about because I think uh, this is how you, how you got on my radar. And I think this is probably how you got, how you got on the radar of many, many, many people is um, your Afghan wedding video. Mm-hmm. Right, that sketch. Yeah. Let's talk that's about that. It's been a while now. It's huh? fantastic, well, man. Because it's still that's funny. Like, that's YouTube 1.0. Hey, man, it's still great. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> Because man. it stands up. It's uh, exemplar in the sense that there's 1,000% exaggeration. For sure. But the exaggeration is on point. Yeah, and that's comedy. And it's comedy. Yeah, that's right? comedy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just taking one thing that's true and blowing it up to the nth degree. So yeah. there's kernel, there's so many kernels of truth in that video, even though it's absurd, you know? Right, whether it's the cologne. Or yeah, or the that many electronics on the belt. And it's just like, right. that, that, again, that is, com- that is comedy. The whole, that is so true, or I've seen this before. It's relatable. And there's a special thing about it because it was so inside baseball to Afghans. And there's not a lot of stuff geared towards us. Or that's one thing I found even just being a comedian yeah, yeah. is that, I just like funny ideas. That one happened to be revolving around Afghan. I normally don't have that much like Afghan material. And after that video, I think there's just nothing out there for people love inside jokes, especially ethnic people. They just just want to be talked to. They value that more than someone's crossover appeal or like mainstream appeal. It makes them feel like they're they're understood. Yes. But Yeah. yeah, true. But, you don't understand that you're making uh, the ceiling pretty low for that ethnic performer. If they just do ethnic material, right? They can make a living. They could do weddings and stuff, sure, sure, and like sure. now rose festivals and sure, all this. Sure. But again, it's that inside joke thing. You are stunting their growth as a performer. Let's say for me, for example, I want to do more things. I don't want to just do like that circuit. And I don't even think that way. Like that was just one idea I happen to have. I'm very proud of it. You know, if I have more, I'll do, I'll do more. And there are some that I did for Goatface, like Baba Knows Best. I wrote that sketch. And Great. so there is material to be mined, but I am of this world, not just like that Afghanistan, community. you know? And I think it does more for our people when you have Afghan artists who are accepted in the mainstream. Cause then people look at us with a different lens. Now we're a fabric of society and it's not this inside joke thing at weddings or this thing that only we know about because that doesn't move the needle for us in this country as much as say like, 
I don't know, Kanye, or th- these are like global performers or... No, I understand. Yes. That's so hard. sometimes it's hard for, because there is nothing for us, you know, or for, there's a ton of shit for white people, you know, and there's not a lot for the brown community. So when there is something, they latch onto it and they're like, right. more, please, more anti-jokes. But All you don't right. understand that if you let them do everything and talk about everything, it's better for us in the long run. No, I understand. And it's okay. There are some performers who actually thrive on the inside joke and that's the way they think and that's great. But that would be disingenuous for me to do and it would just be like a pure money play. You know? Yeah, I really appreciate you sh- you sharing that that nuanced kind of approach to that thing that I think in many ways you being on the radar of Afghans, of brown people, of however mm-hmm. you want to describe it. But like I want them to come to me, not me go to them as a performer. You know what I mean? Like, I want to be able to talk about whatever I want to talk about artistically and sure. what moves me. Sure. And if Afghans gravitate towards that, fantastic. If not? If not, that's fine. Yeah. But there are some performers who just like go go for the Afghan or go for the Persian or go for the whatever it is. They just like hit that super hard all the time. And I just feel like that's creative handcuffs. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I really like the fact that you said you don't think that way. And in many ways, that's not why I you don't, do it. I don't, because, you know, I grew up in Seattle. Yeah. I went to high school. It was like yeah. white and Asian. And yeah. it's very American. So yeah. like even what I consumed growing up was American television, like Conan's, Simpsons, SNL. So my comedy brain is very- Americanized. Main, main, Americanized and mainstream. Yeah. That, and I also think that when I do- even in my my special, that CISO special that's on Amazon now, yeah, the, the yeah. there's no business like show business. When I talk about being Muslim in America or these certain topics that are hot button issues, yeah. I feel like they hit harder because I've already endeared myself to you know white crowds or whatever, or Republican, whatever it happens to be, just a regular audience. Sure. They're like, oh, this guy's like my cousin, or they're laughing at just normal jokes. So when you hit them with some truth, or some perspective on the brown experience that they haven't thought about, the body is more willing to accept it instead of if I'm hitting that all the time, then you come across as a militant Mm. brown person and they don't even want to hear the message. Because that's all they see. That's all they see. Or because then they feel like they're being preached to. Ah, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like hiding the medicine in the jelly where if your split is like 30% truth and like 70%, just silly and what uh, whatever that split is. I've just found that for me, my sensibility is already silly and whatever and accessible for anybody. And when I want to inject some of that truth, I found it to be more powerful because I'm not talking about that all the time. I'm like bobbing and weaving. It's like throwing combinations and stuff. You can't throw an uppercut the whole hour. Every punch. Every punch is uppercut. It's not going to be effective. You got to have a jab. You got to have a hook. No, I think that's really- You got to dance around the ring. I actually think that metaphor works quite well. Had it always been that calculated or now in retrospect, you realize that that's what's most effective? Uh, I think just doing it, I've realized that's kind of a good formula. Um, Yeah, when you first start doing stand-up, you're just throwing spaghetti against a wall. You don't really know- What sticks. What sticks, yeah. And then you just lean into what does, yeah. So you brought up The Simpsons, you brought up Conan. Who were your early influences in, in, in comedy as a kid growing up? Like, What really spoke to you in terms of comedy? It was those things. Um, I didn't grow up watching stand-up, really. So it was mm-hmm. SNL, it was Simpsons, and it was a late-night Conan. Conan, huh? Yeah, like after Tonight Show, that yeah. 12.30 time slot. Yeah. Weird, absurd Conan. That it, spoke to you, huh? That, yeah. That's your flavor of comedy. That's my flavor of comedy. And then I guess it, it kind of funneled itself through stand-up. 
I didn't model myself after any other stand-up. I didn't consume a lot of stand-up comedy. It wasn't until maybe I was 17 that I even kind of became aware of it. I think that's good because I feel like that means I approach stand-up from a totally different angle. Like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to... Because a lot of times when people first start doing stand-up, you can tell who they're influenced by. You'd be like, oh, this guy watched a lot of Dane Cook or this guy watched a lot of Mitch Hedberg or you're kind of a clone of who you really like when you first start. And it's obvious. And it's obvious. But yeah. I didn't have that because I, I didn't grow up listening to prior records or Carlin or anything like that. I kind of came at it from a sketch sensibility. Okay, so let's talk about sketch for a second. So we understand what stand-up is based on what you've kind of described already. Mm-hmm. So understand, help us understand what exactly sketch is and do you get the same inspiration that you do for stand-up as you do for sketch? How to help us yeah. understand. Yeah, okay, so sketch is like SNL or Chappelle's show or in Living Color or Kroll show or Inside Amy. Those are sketch shows. SNL's the big one for me. You know, it was a big inspiration. They are titans of sketch. They're like the gold standard. And yeah, I just find that stand-up and sketch are things that just come to me very naturally. And I'm pretty good. I'll just get these ideas. I'll get inspired. And then I'm pretty good about knowing whether it's a stand-up idea or a sketch idea. You know like what, what, the, what the best vehicle for this idea is. Got it. Got it. What box to put it in. Sometimes there's too many moving parts and different characters to really have it translate on stage. And yeah. I know, I go, okay, this is, this is more of a sketch. Got it. And then other times it's more of a stand-up bit. I don't know. I've just been doing it long enough where I know what box to put it in. I'm all about recognizing the novel idea and then knowing the vehicle for it. Because you're just, you're just trying to implant this idea that you have into other people's heads. Like you want them to see it the way you see it. And you go, how do I do that? I think that is a sign of a creator and artist. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Now on your Instagram, on your on your, you know, digital presence, you do both. Yeah. Yeah. Well I mean lately I've been putting up stand up clips. Yeah. And also little sketches around my house. Yeah. Cause I just get all these sketch ideas and sometimes it's fun to do just playing both characters and doing it with the iPhone. And I've, I've, I've realized, watched, yeah. yeah, thanks. Like people really respond to the do-it-yourself nature of doing it with the iPhone because there's this charm to it where people are like, oh, this is so bare bones, I could do it. And there's, ah, a, it's there's a thrill to it. Well, not just that, but like sometimes you see something that's great on TV and you go, okay, there's a crew, there's special effects, there's all these, I don't have this type of camera, but when something can elicit great laughter, and all it is is an iPhone, it just shows you the power of ideas. And it's kind of inspiring to know like, oh, I have all the tools to create this as well. It's very liberating to know that if the idea is strong enough, you don't need the craziest tech in the world to hit an audience or to get that point across. And you find that's what, uh, what resonates most with people. Yeah, and it's also, it's a good time killer until I get another opportunity to do something for TV or instead of it just burning a hole in my pocket, because I, I keep on getting these ideas. So why stockpile all these ideas that will never see the light of day? And, and even stand-up, like I, I write so much and I had this epiphany, like why am I being so precious with these bits? Why don't I just like throw them out on Instagram? Because at least it'll hit an audience some way. And I have enough other material for the hour like I'm doing here at DC. Yeah. So just to be a little more open with sharing it with the world, because there are some gatekeepers when it comes to TV and film. And you have no control over that. You if can, it happens, great. If, if it happens, not, great. You can audition, you can pitch shows, but you're still beholden to whoever this suit is for this period of time. 
but no one can stop you from posting on Instagram and it's a really it's a real run it's even podcasting like this it's like no, powerful. no one could say you can't upload there's no gatekeeper so why not do that while you take the lotto tickets of traditional Hollywood yeah there's no monopoly over distribution now when it comes to that yeah, yeah. and look there's even region protected stuff when it comes to Netflix or other like oh I can't get it in this area blah 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 even even Goatface, like I love Goatface, but there are people in other countries who are like, oh, I can't watch it. It's region protected and they'll they won't get to see it. But what's great about Instagram is it's like Netflix in everyone's pocket. You know, it's very digestible as well. And there's no region protected. Everyone, the world will see it. Now let's talk about the digestion of your material on Instagram mm -hmm. or online. What do you find now is somebody who's always tinkering, refining your material? What do you find to be the best uh, medium? as it pertains to the digital economy? Like what, what do people want to consume in terms of your videos? Um, it's different. I've just found, I guess, stand-up captions are a big thing. Like posting stand-up clips and having captions on them because a lot of people are at work and they can't watch with the audio on. Oh, how interesting. So a lot of people consume sketches and, and, and stand-up with the sound off. So if you throw captions on there, it, it sets yourself up for maybe going a little more viral than before. Oh, that's curious. Yeah. But also what sucks is you'll figure out the algorithm on Instagram and then they'll change it on you. Facebook's always doing that. They kind of destroyed independent comedy. Uh, there was a time, this is back in the day when I was doing sketches on, on YouTube with like Afghan Wedding and then later with Goatface when we were doing YouTube stuff. We would have some videos go viral. I don't know, it was taking off just independent sketch on YouTube. Yeah. Then Facebook came along and started doing Facebook video. Yeah. And the... Uh, it just, and they kind of cooked the books in terms of what constituted as a view. Like if people saw it for one second or two seconds, they would count it as a view. So Facebook video destroyed independent sketch on YouTube. So that was no longer a viable thing anymore. And that sucked, you know? Yeah. So then it became more bite size on Instagram. And even this past year, there was a, for a while it was working where I would take one minute clips, put captions on it, hashtag it. Yeah. And a lot of them get like 100,000 views or 200,000 views and it was moving the needle. It was great. And then they started favoring IGTV. So the one minute videos weren't doing as well anymore and you had to make them IGTV. So it was doing that for a bit and then some of them would take off and now they've changed the algorithm again. So it's this arms race of sometimes it's not about the content. It's like who knows the algorithm the best. You need to be like a like part performer, part hacker. That's your, well, you're an engineer. You can figure it out. Yeah. I wasn't, I was mechanical. I wasn't CS. So I, I took the wrong major. So what I'm hearing you say is you're tinkering. Uh, you're always tinkering with these different platforms to try to figure out when the best time is for that algorithm to work. I was just to trying make to keep up with the technology, trying to hit your audience. Like right. if you're going to do it outside the traditional system, because the Hollywood movie, it'll be shoved down. Mm -hmm. You know, they have, they have a marketing machine for that. There's traditional Hollywood and then there's to the people just straight to the people, you know, like a podcast or a YouTube yes. video or Instagram or Facebook video. Got it. And whoever knows, whoever could see the matrix on these mediums, whoever knows how to just get the material in front of eyeballs, sometimes um, kind of whatever people will take off because they know the matrix or a company knows how to put that in front of them. So you have to be talented, but you, it's a combination of, of like being a good performer and also knowing how to get your shit in front of people's faces. I think I understand. How do you do the second part? It's tough. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. You know, I had it figured out for a bit with the Instagram videos and captions and then they changed the algorithm. So it's just, 
trying to keep up with, and then TikTok is a thing now. Are you on TikTok? Kind of, but reluctantly. So it's it's this nuclear arms race to try to figure out what the algorithm is doing and, and where the eyeballs are and trying to get your stuff, hmm. trying to keep up. Interesting. So now, uh, now that you've made it, right? So, so let's go back to your story. So you kind of came to this crossroads where you had to choose between your, your, your nine to five job where you make your family uh, proud of the work I that guess, you're doing. But the right? thing is like even me doing engineering was uh, settling to them. You know, ideally I would be a doctor or a lawyer or something. So even me doing engineering, it's not like they were juiced. They like, like, uh, it was more palatable to tell people that I did engineering, obviously, mm-hmm. as opposed to comedy. Because comedy could, it was the side thing that no one really needed to know about. And they could still say, like, oh, he's an engineer. So, so that had some social currency to it. Totally. Once you took that plunge, though, how did, how did that first conversation with your parents go? Not as bad as I thought because um, they had known this is what I was trying to do for a long time. Because mm-hmm. this is like three, three and a half years into working professionally. And even when I was going to college, they knew this is what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it came out of nowhere. Um, maybe it surprised them that this is the final step of executing this plan. That they Maybe they didn't think it would actually happen. But when I did, they had just known about it for too long to really rock the boat. Now, I was kind of surprised. I thought they'd be more upset. I mean, they were upset, but it wasn't like... Detrimental. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Because they had known this day would come. And or they knew that I wanted this day to come and I was finally t- do, taking a leap. So there's one element where your parents like may feel like, okay, our son, he's trying this thing, great. When did they come to the conclusion that this is your thing? Like, When did your parents start to realize that what you're doing is making them proud? That's a very the proud thing. That's a very interesting kind of. My mom sooner than my dad. Let's talk about that. How did that happen? I think you know when I left engineering, there was multiple instances like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. And I remember one time we went to Europe. Like they were like, "Do you want to come to Europe with us?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Sure." I had nothing going on, so we had this lovely European vacation, and then we were in London before we flew back, and then my dad had this like heart. He's like. I'll, if you go back to school, I'll pay for your master's degree. And, and th- he didn't even do this deal with my brother. This just shows you like how he was grasping at straws. He's like, whatever you want to do, any further education, I'll pay for all of it. Because they paid for my brother's four years and my four years, but his dental stuff, my brother had to pay for. But my dad was just at such a loss. He was like, whatever you want to do, I'll pay for it. If you go, <laughs> wow. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, was this a trip just to kind of like do a scared straight or something? And uh, I just stuck to my guns. And it was just frustrating because yeah. it was a conversation that was revisited so many times and you just feel like you're not heard. Understood. You're not understood. I, I get it. You know, I understand where it's coming from, especially the older I get. I understand that they did it because they want the best. Yeah. But uh, pardon me, would like to think, like, give yourself a little credit that you raised a rational, like if I was smart enough to get an engineering degree, don't you think I want what's best for me as well? Like, I'm not this loose cannon. Like, trust I have a plan. That's and, interesting. And this shit hits the fan that, like, I'll pivot. Like, I don't want to be homeless. Like, trust I'm not going to, like, start doing heroin or, you know? Like, sometimes yeah. it's too much of a concern. So there was that. And it was a little tense when I first left engineering. Every, every couple months, it would be a thing that was revisited. Yeah. And then with each milestone and each Hollywood, I don't know, token it became an easier pill to swallow. So, or th- there was a light at the end of the tunnel. It wasn't just like a pipe dream as I got these things over time. 
and I think my mom broke for Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Yeah, I, I took her to the premiere. Oh, great, 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 great. So she's in New York. We're staying at this wonderful hotel. Yeah. She's meeting Tina Fey and Margot Robbie. Dude, you, she must have been starstruck. Oh, for sure. The same way I was, same way you probably were. Yeah. Yeah. So she got to experience the highs of the highs. Right. And it, it was like a tangible thing at that point. It wasn't just like, I'm doing comedy and I'm doing some shows, this nebulous thing that she would hear over the phone. Now she's on the red carpet with Tina Fey and all this, and then I would have some late night appearances and be in a TV show here and there. So, and that's kind of fun and exciting for my mom. Yeah, and she gets only, to see her boy on yeah, TV. Yeah, the only missing link was maybe a financial stability because I would yeah. pop into things here and there, but that's not like a steady paycheck. And my dad held out for longer. Like the, my dad's not moved by, he's not starstruck. He doesn't give a shit about, you know, Tina Fey. <laughs> he just cares about nuts and bolts like house, right. uh, stability, car, what will people think? Yeah, yeah, You yeah, know, status yeah. and all that. Oh, yeah. And um, this would happen several times. I would hear, you know, people at these Afghan parties, they would, they would talk to my dad and be like, oh, you must be so proud. So he mm. would have to face that conversation several times. And that mm. made me feel good that my dad would have to hear that from other people. Because I don't think he felt proud. But to hear that from multiple people, you know, of our people, to be like, it's great what he's doing. He's not hearing that. That's not his perspective, you know? He, he's expecting to be like, you must be so embarrassed by your son. How can he be doing, you know? But the collective response from the communities, he's doing great things. This is so, you know, you must be so proud. And I think that chipped away at him maybe a little bit, hearing that enough. That and then me just having more financial stabi stability yeah. and settling into this thing more of a career. Yeah. It's just been going on for so long. It can't be a phase anymore. So it's almost like your father went through his own his own transformation, not through not only like seeing you kind of like, you know, at milestone after milestone after milestone, kind of achieving these milestones, but it was from literally the people in which he was scared would judge him for being the type of father that would raise a comedian. Yes. Where the people that were saying you must be so proud. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the thing he was afraid of, he was getting the opposite and that must have been perplexing for him for a while. Because he didn't know how to process it probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you ever had like an honest conversation with your dad about that process? I'm curious. Not really. I've just kind of assessed it from afar. Like we love yeah. each other, you know? Yeah. I always describe it as a Professor X Magneto situation where there's a deep love and understanding, but they're just diametrically opposed. Oh, you know, when gosh. it comes to mutants. You're so funny. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. When I go home for Thanksgiving, we see each other, there, there's love there and all that. But it was always this thing that sat over here that we didn't discuss. And if we ever did discuss, he would bring it up and say, you know, he always felt that I was putting my real life on hold. Right. And so that's where his panic would come from because the longer I'm doing this thing, the further behind the starting blocks I am with the rest of the children and everybody else until I got so far behind in his mind that he had to process it a different way that, okay, maybe, maybe he's, not on, he's not running on the same track as all these other people. You know what they say, if you want to change the world, change your metaphor. So your father <laughs> must have changed his metaphor with you. There's that. And then I, I just don't think you can maintain that level of rage for that long. Oh my gosh. And that's kind of eye-opening just uh, as a passage of time, as an observer, just how time tempers people. Yeah. And your parents are getting older and you, you, can't, you can't be at an 11 your whole life. They get soft. They get apathetic. 
right? Yeah, there's that and just sort of, I don't know, what is it? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting something different. So I think it's just been going on for so long that you have to accept it. And Fahim, what's really curious about all this is this is happening in parallel with your brother going off to become a dentist. Yeah. Which it's hard because your parents are seeing one in their mind, in their eyes, your father in particular, seeing one child thrive. Yes. And the other kind of just floating around. Yeah, but in their traditional sense, That's though, what I mean. That's yeah, what I mean. I've always found what's interesting about Afghans is, especially parents, they never say, are you happy? <laughs> or a bulk of them. I can't think of any time my dad has ever said, are you happy? No, no, no. That's Happiness not has no bearing on anything. No, that's not part of their it's vocabulary. not part of it. They would rather you be a miserable neurosurgeon than a happy gardener. No, I think I think this idea of happiness is a, in many ways, is a very Western, uh, Western American concept, right? Like, l- let's talk about love for a second, if you allow me to, to indulge really quickly. In the context of Afghanistan or traditional cultures where where there's arranged marriages, is the idea is you get married, then you learn to love your partner, your husband, your wife. Mm. In the context of the United States, is you fall in love. You the, the love is so strong that you can't handle yourself that it just takes you. Yeah, and then you make a long-term decision based on a short-term feeling. You fall in love and you, yeah. and then yeah. you, know, you kind of deal with it. And so this idea of happiness is, a, is an aftermath sort of thing that happens in the process of everything else that's expected of you. I see, yeah. So you become the neurosurgeon and then you figure out how to be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know what's really interesting about that is you know, uh, it just depends on what works for you because there are many people that I know that uh, live in, you know, arranged marriages or, 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 or they are that neurosurgeon. Yeah, they I'm find not saying meaning. one's better than the other because there are plenty of success stories and failures on, on both sides. And as it pertains to this nuanced approach to gosh, being like, being in many ways, you're a pioneer, right? Like an African-American comedian who's now, you know, selling out shows across the country. You made it on Joe Rogan, which is fantastic. Yeah, that was fun. And then you recently got on to, you were recently on television. Conan, I did Conan. You actually got on Conan the first time. Yeah, yeah. So did you tell him that you admired him as a kid? Okay, so I've done Conan twice. The first time I did it, I wrote this letter to him. You did? Yeah, just detailing how he was a part of those three institutions, SNL, Simpsons, Simpsons, and Late Night Conan, and how it really informed my comedy, and I owe a lot to him. I don't know if he got it. I gave it to his people to give to him. I don't know if he got it or you not. You hand wrote it? Yeah, hand wrote it. Great. Yeah. I just did it for me. Like I just wanted him to he know. Needs to know that. Yeah. So I did the show a second time. I didn't ask him about it. I didn't probe, but it, it was just it's just great because he's like one of my idols. And he was very generous with his praise and stuff. He's like, That's so great. Come back whenever you want. And that must have been a really powerful moment for you. Yeah. Especially because these guys just live in a box when you're a kid and it's not this real thing. And then you like move out there. Yeah. And you're like, oh no, these are humans and this is an actual path. It takes a long time, you know, and stars have to align and but but there is a way and, and they are humans. It's not just this fantastical thing in a tube anymore. Now that's what you felt when you saw him in the in the flash, like when you saw Conan in the first time. Yeah. You weren't starstruck. You weren't like I mean your your immediate thought was, okay, he's an actual human being. Uh I had this feeling when I, f- not with Conan, but when I first was puttering around the Hollywood improv, mm-hmm. um, I think I saw Adam Sandler and Kevin James like outside of the Hollywood improv and stuff like that doesn't happen in Seattle or, you know what I mean? So I'm just wa- watching them go into the improv and it was kind of uh, a perspective shifter where like, 
oh, these are just people. It was crazy. Like, oh, these guys who live in a box that I watch at home are going into the improv. They're like real people. I'm in this scene or whatever. It's a tangible thing now. It's not fantastical anymore. And things like that happen the more you're in Hollywood and the more you're in the industry. Like I would have friends who get on SNL or write for SNL. Yeah. And then it becomes real. These things become real because you hold them up on this pedestal and like, uh, like they're fantastical things that you can never be a part of because you're a mere mortal. And then your friend gets on the show or whatever and you go, oh, these are tangible things. This is just how it works. Yeah. I've put it in this place in my mind, but it's actually very reachable, reachable, reachable and accessible. That's great. Um, Fahim, I'd love to ask you a question. What was the most powerful uh, stand-up experience that you've had? Powerful experience. You know, sometimes, I don't know if it's like one in particular, but there are instances where I'll do a show, I'll, I'll get done doing a show, and there'll be another like younger Afghan or kid, a minority, you know? And just the fact that I'm doing it and I've done the things I've done, it just, it's almost like someone doing a four minute mile where now they a can switch has gone off in their head. Like the, maybe they can point to it to their parents now, Got or it. it's an actual thing that can be done. Like they didn't even know it was possible. Yeah, Roger Roger Bannister. Once he ran that four minute mile, the next year something like so, thirty yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. People ran had it as this well. physical barrier or this mental barrier in their mind that wouldn't even let them break the four minute mile. And the, the mere fact that I'm doing these things, I guess, is powerful for for these kids. And that's not why I do it. I'm doing this very selfishly because. I don't know, I enjoy comedy and I, I want to progress my career and I have projects and ideas that I want to share with people and I like making people laugh and all that. I'm not thinking about inspiring some kid or whatever. But when that's a byproduct, it's, it feels good. Like, well, you oh, know, wow, that's crazy. We're well, changing the paradigm a little bit. No, I think that's wonderful. But I also think too, like, when you are authentic to yourself and the things that you know you need to share with the world, that in itself becomes inspiring. And I think that's what you're doing. Mm. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and I, I guess I just want to show, maybe by example, and I'm not trying to do this on purpose, that we can talk about anything, we can be anything, whatever barriers we have are, are self-imposed. The world's a big place. Mm -hmm. And I, I think very much, I don't want to generalize, but I think Afghans do have this thing of what will people think and what mm -hmm. is expected of me. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're a good person and you're not encroaching on anybody else's life, mm -hmm. that shouldn't really inform what you do. Mm -hmm. It's so if you are able to just have your eyes on your own paper and just care about what you do, you can go so far. Um, you really shouldn't be concerned about what other people think of you. That's one of the most powerful things or pieces of advice that I give is like, you shouldn't be concerned about what other people think about you. That's wonderful, man. You've been doing this for the last 17 years and putting in all that work is really what got you to where you are today. Yeah. Yeah, that focus, not caring about what other people think, just going for it. Yeah, just doing what you love and being focused on that and on the art instead of, I don't know, I guess being focused on what matters and none of that schoolgirl stuff, you know? But also fame, like I, I just want to say too, like I think in many ways you're really lucky to have known that that's the thing that you wanted to do. I mean, yes, there's so many I'm people. I'm very fortunate because I have friends and I've met people and it's not typical to know what you want to do so early on in life. You're, you're blessed, man. Seriously, you're really lucky. Yeah. Um, for me, I think that's a really great way to kind of wrap this section of the, uh, the podcast up. I'd love to always ask my guests uh, rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask oh, you a yeah, few yeah, questions yeah. and kind of just, uh, you know, say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> it can be. 
Depends on where your mind is, yeah. sir. Okay, what's one song that you know all the lyrics to? Oh, man. I'm bad at lyrics, dude. You're good at dancing. I'm good at dancing. Lances too. Your other True. alter, alter, yeah. alter personality. I feel the music. I don't. I'm bad at lyrics. Like, okay. I don't know if there's one that I. Oh, maybe "Around the World" by Daft Punk because that's all they say. <laughs> <laughs> I love that response. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Perfect. That's good. Okay. What would you want your last meal to be? Last meal to be. Ooh, I guess probably a nice steak. Yeah. How do you yeah. like it? How do you like medium. It? Yeah, it's good. It's good. The thing um, is, I like I like nachos, but not enough for a last meal. Mm. Need more sustenance, right? Yeah. Okay. What would you tell your twenty-year-old self? What would I tell my twenty-year-old self? How? What insecurities did you have then, and what sense of inadequacy did you have then? You could think you could, you know, eradicate by by this message that you're about to deliver. You mean in life, or yeah, just like a message, like for example, and I would tell my twenty-year-old self that. Um, uh, try different things and it's going to be okay in the end. Just keep going. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Why is it so hard for me? Drink water maybe? Drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, drink more water. I guess it's a it's a journey and everyone's path is so different. Or don't expect your path to be the same as someone else's. It might be shorter, it might be longer. Whatever yours is supposed to be is supposed to be. That's great, man. Yeah, and enjoy the journey. Mm. Obviously, you want goals and all that stuff, but it's not just about what's on the other side. You're supposed to enjoy the trip. I think it's great advice. Um, okay, here you go. Mm. I think you'll be able to answer this a lot quicker. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, probably flying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, uh, like Wolverine is my favorite, but I think it's just personality. Because honestly, I don't think his superpowers are that great. Claws super sense of smell healing fast yeah those are nice but I'd rather fly yeah okay flying great how would your friends describe you in one word one word uh maybe a robot a little bit like a robot mechanical engineering (laughs) oh my gosh I just want to learn how to work on myself oh that's too funny so robot yeah okay yeah just emotionally I'm pretty even keeled well that can be really positive Okay, what time period would you want to spend one day in and why? You know, when you ask a minority, you don't want to go back, (laughs) right? Can we go in the future? Yeah, you can go in the future. (laughs) The year 3025 just seems cool. 3025, is there some sort of mathematical like... uh, It just sounds super futuristic. Maybe, maybe like the 20s, just like... The roaring 20s, yeah. Yeah, just go where it's like civilized and stuff. You know, there's not not as much technology, but it still has a semblance of everyday life just for the mind fuck of, of whoa. Yeah, well, that's really when the Industrial Revolution was, at, you know, and then and all of a sudden the Great Depression hit, so it could have been, depends on which part of the 1920s you're yeah, interested okay. in. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's too many details. I know. I got to know my history. All right, sir. Uh, last question for you. What's your message for the world? My message for the world? Yeah. This is kind of like what would you give your twenty-year-old advice? A little bit. Yeah, it's in that same. It's in that same vein. Message for the world: Try to be happy. <laughs> you have one life. Choose happiness, uh, and also it's it's your life to live. Live for yourself. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a couple of things. Like it's your life, so live for you. Don't live for other people. And also, maybe it's easier said than done. But try not living for the weekend. When I was living at, or when I was working at Boeing, obviously it was a means to an end, but I'm always looking at the clock. Yeah. Think of how much time you spend 
waiting. Spend, yeah, yeah. Like uh, that's not really living if you're just like living for Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And there are degrees of this. People, it's okay to have a job that it's not exactly what you want, but it, it allows you to do what you want. Yeah. Like I don't think my brother loves dentistry, but he, he makes good money. Yeah. He could work like three days a week. So it affords him the lifestyle and that's still a win too. But if it's just nothing but dread, it's okay to make that leap. Like you may be happier. Even if you make less money, just uh, there's a lot of life to just be living for the weekend. Yeah, I think that's great. Okay, fine. Uh, I just want to say that I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the work that you do. In many ways, I appreciate your comedy, your perspective, and the ability for you to make all of us laugh. So in that vein, man, thank you for your service and oh, uh, nice. keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, man. Okay. Yeah, of course. Thank you, sir. Thank you for caring. Okay. Bye. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com. <laughs>